Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 17, Daniel, chapters 6 and 7. Last week, we dealt with the famous biblical story of Daniel in the lion's den. And this narrative that's found in... Daniel chapter 6, it's been a favorite among children and adults, really, for centuries. And on the surface, it's a story of bravery, courage in the face of death, a testament to what true trust in God looks like when we have an opportunity to exhibit faith unto death. Faith unto death. Now, is that a Christian motto? Is it a saying that we hang around our necks? Or we exhibit in a pretty frame and nail it up on a wall in our homes? Or is it actually something we're ready to live out? Is Daniel and is our Lord Yeshua did? And yet, in a much broader sense, the historical event of Daniel in the lion's den is at least as much about righteously motivated civil disobedience as it is about a believer putting faith into action. It's about prioritizing or harmonizing God's government with our human government. It's also about how a worshiper of the God of Israel is to deal with the harsh realities of trying to live a heavenly lifestyle in a carnal world. And it challenges us on what to use as the criteria for making personal choices of when to obey, and if there ever is a cause, to disobey the laws of our nation whether that nation's a monarchy, a dictatorship, or a democracy. And what Daniel teaches us is that giving our lives over to God, even since the advent of Christ, comes with a personal cost. Messiah paid the price to pay for our sins. And as believers, we pay the price to live the way our Savior demands that we live. The standard and the true statement among Christians is that divine grace is a free gift from God. The pardon we receive for sinning against the Father is bought and paid for by another. But over and over again, the Bible cautions us that while grace is indeed free, that grace is also something that's given on a spiritual and an eternal level. On earth, while we live in these fleshly tents, we too must pick up our crosses physically as well as spiritually in order to follow the crucified one. We must be willing to accept the likely consequences. Picking up our crosses doesn't mean to publicly display our messianic and Christian faith with religious bumper stickers and jewelry. It means, if need be, to suffer along with our Christ. 
the same way he did. And I pray that none of us ever have to face that kind of a dire predicament. It means to follow divine truth when the the crowds prefer to follow religious convention and tradition. And at times it means to disobey what is an otherwise legally enacted civil law if it directly conflicts with God's law. Now we discussed in our prior meeting how to discern when to say no to our government and when to do what it demands no matter how difficult or even humiliating the doing might be. Briefly, we must divide our civil government laws into two categories. Laws of morality versus laws of finance, fairness, and preference. And unless we know God's Torah, it's unlikely we'll know in which category to place each of those laws. For instance, I've heard it said that it is immoral to tax people too highly. It's immoral for the government to control our health care. It's immoral to demand military conscription in order to defend our nation. Not according to God's word. Rather, from a heavenly standpoint, these are all issues of fairness, finance, and personal preference that the Lord has turned over to human government to administrate. I've also often heard it said that homosexuality and gay marriage are issues of personal preference. That a woman's right to choose an abortion is an issue of fairness or even finance. That adultery, cohabitation, sex outside of marriage, minor children indulging in medical birth control without parental approval, these are all private matters of choice and preference. That being cunning, taking unfair advantage of others in investments, even if it involves deceit that's not technically illegal, is simply an issue of finance. Rather, the Bible says these are all things about morality. So once we know which category a government law falls into, preference or moral, then we can know better how to respond. At the same time, we cannot allow our government to define those categories for us. For a believer, our only choice is to follow the Lord's definitions of morality and of preference. So as with the example of Daniel, when the government oversteps God's intended purpose for it, and the government decides to redefine morality and preference, we are under no obligation in God's eyes to adhere to it. In fact, especially as Messianic and Christian, We have a duty to disregard or even disobey laws that are are, are immoral from God's perspective if we are pushed into a corner and we have no choice but to make that kind of a decision. Yet fair or not, we also have to understand, as Daniel, that dire consequences may and probably will eventually accompany our righteous decision. We shouldn't be surprised at this. And there's no better illustration 
than Daniel in the lion's den as the cost for taking up our crosses and becoming disciples of Yeshua. In fact, when we read of this one world government of the coming Antichrist, Daniel's situation is going to be repeated countless times over all around the globe for believers. So prepare. Let's uh, reread a portion of Daniel. We're just going to read from Daniel chapter 6, verse 26 to the end. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that would begin on page 1108. 1108, Daniel chapter 6. Starting at verse 26. King Daryavesh, Darius, wrote all the peoples, nations, and languages living anywhere on earth. Shalom Rav, abundant peace. I herewith issue a decree that everywhere in my kingdom people are to tremble and be in awe of the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed, his rulership will last till the end. He saves, rescues, does signs and wonders, both in heaven and on earth. He delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Dariavesh and also during the reign of Koresh, Cyrus, the Persian. After King Darius, Dariavesh, disposed of those politically motivated conspirators who had devised a scheme to get rid of Daniel. And after the king saw the miraculous power of Daniel's God in action by saving Daniel from becoming lion food, he responded as patriarch as his patriarch King Nebuchadnezzar had done when he had ordered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace for disobeying a government decree. But they survived. Nebuchadnezzar subsequently ordered that on pain of death no one on earth was to harm these three Jews. So, in imitation, Darius issued an edict demanding that all the people on earth are to fear and to reverence the God of Daniel. And as with Nebuchadnezzar, Dariavesh is, from his own perspective, king of the world. Obviously, he's not a stupid man. He knows that, practically speaking, he only controls a corner of the world, but at the same time, such is the level of his grandiosity. It's not unlike a rather common way that we hear the President of the United States spoken of as the single most powerful man in the world. That may or not be entirely true on a practical level, but it is a prevailing mindset. And in some situations, the President probably indeed has an upper hand above all other national leaders on this planet. The king's decree of verses 27 and 28 extol the virtues of Daniel's God, but at the same time we must not think that Darius has overthrown all of his own gods for Jehovah. He never implies, never confesses that Jehovah is the only true God. The only demand is that all who are within his power to command are to show proper respect for Daniel's God. He certainly acknowledges some attributes of the Father that even in his thoroughly pagan mind were obvious to him. 
The Lord is living and He is active in the lives of men. He is eternal. And His kingdom, meaning His domain, can't be destroyed. Nor can His rulership be overturned by some other god or goddess. He is a God who is able to save, to deliver His followers from otherwise impossible situations. He reveals His presence and power in signs and wonders, meaning miracles. And He does this not only in heaven, but also on earth. And understand that from Darius' perspective, heaven is more that, that, that undefined expanse of the clouds and the skies where it was understood that all gods and goddesses lived. It's not the biblical heaven of Judeo-Christianity. Chapter 6 ends with the notice that Daniel prospered during the duration of Darius the Medes' reign and also later when Cyrus the Persian replaced him. I think it ought to be noticed that while there were moments of great danger, even imminent death in Daniel's life in Babylon, it seems that most of the time he did quite well for himself. He enjoyed a, a meaningful, if not abundant, lifestyle. I suspect that the faithfulness and truthfulness and courage and loyalty that were seen in the lives and service of these Jews to their masters, that of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, had a lot to do with the generally decent way that the exiles of Judah were treated during those 70 years in Babylon. So much so that when soon... Cyrus would call for the Jews to be given permission to return to their homeland of Judah. And he even committed Persian government money to help rebuild the Jerusalem temple. Relatively few Jews took advantage. The majority had created good lives for themselves in Babylon. They had established family and community ties and they preferred to stay. So let's move on now to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, 1109 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babel, Daniel had a dream and visions in his head as he was lying on his bed. And he wrote the dream down, and this is his account. I had a vision at night. I saw there before me the four winds of the sky breaking out over the great sea. Four huge animals came up out of the sea, each different from the others. The first one was like a lion, but it had eagle's wings. And as I watched, its wings were plucked off. It was lifted off the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human heart was given to it. Then there was another animal, a second one like a bear. And it raised itself up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, get up and gorge yourself with flesh. And after this I looked and there was another one, like a leopard with four bird's wings on its sides. The animal also had four heads, and it was given power to rule. And after this I looked in the night visions, and there before me was a fourth animal. Dreadful, horrible, extremely strong, great with great iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and stamped its feet on what was left. It was different from all the animals that had gone before it, and it had ten horns. 
And while I was considering the horns, another horn sprang up among them, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And in this horn were eyes, like human eyes, a mouth, speaking arrogantly. And as I watched, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient One took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, with wheels of burning fire. A stream of fire flowed from his presence. Thousands, thousands ministered to him. Millions, millions stood before him. Then the court was convened. The books were opened. Kept watching. Then because of the arrogant words which the horn was speaking, I watched as the animal was killed. Its body was destroyed. It was given over to be burned up completely. Now as for the other animals, their rulership was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a time, for a season. And I kept watching the night visions. When I saw coming with the clouds of heaven someone like a son of man, he approached the Ancient One was led into his presence. <clears throat> to him was given rulership and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His rulership is an eternal rulership that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now as for me, Daniel, my spirit deep within me was troubled. The visions in my head frightened me. I approached one of those standing by. I asked him what all this really meant. He said that he'd make me understand how to interpret these things. These four huge animals are four kingdoms that will arise on earth, but the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom, possess the kingdom forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know what the fourth beast meant. The one that was different from all the others. So very terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze nails which devoured and crushed and <clears throat> stamped its feet on what was left. What the ten horns on its head meant. The other horn which sprang up before which three fell. and The horn that had eyes and a mouth speaking arrogantly seemed greater than the others. I watched. That horn made war with the holy ones and was winning till the ancient one came. Judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High and the time came for the holy ones to take over the kingdom. This is what he said. The fourth animal. It will be a fourth kingdom on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down and crush it. Now as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise and yet another will arise after them. Now he'll be different from the earlier ones and he will put down three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and try to exhaust the Holy Ones of the Most High. He'll attempt to alter the seasons and the law. And the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But when the court goes into session, he'll be stripped of his rulership, which will be consumed, completely destroyed. Then the kingdom, the rulership, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. Their kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey them. This is the end of the account.
As for me, Daniel, my thoughts frightened me so much that I turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. This chapter is one I'd almost rather avoid. It's difficult. It's full of ambiguity. And it can cause huge arguments, trust me. Sometimes hurt feelings. No matter what position one takes about things that it says. Even more, we're going to necessarily have to get pretty technical if we want to do more than only to sensationalize or to oversimplify the prophetic elements of this chapter that has been the subject of so many novels and movies in the past few years. So I want to take a few minutes to talk about the nature of this chapter in general. With the close of chapter 6, we exit what can properly be called the historic section of the book of Daniel. And in chapter 7, we enter into the prophetic. Now, we don't want to take that description too far, as of course, in the historic section, there was some prophecy, and in the prophetic section, there's some history. Nothing is ever nice, neat, and clean, as our commentaries and textbooks often make it seem with their lovely labels. However, it's also evident that Daniel chapter 7, although still written in Aramaic, thus having a somewhat Gentile orientation, represents a transition or maybe kind of a shading off from a Gentile bent until we reach to chapter 8 that then changes to the Hebrew language with a predominantly Hebrew orientation. Overall, what we see is that the underlying substance of the vision of the statue that consisted of four medals that God gave to the pagan Gentile Nebuchadnezzar is now presented in a vision to the pious Jewish Daniel using different symbolism, that of four beasts. Thus a succession of the four medals of the statue presented in order from head to chest and arms to torso and thighs to legs and feet, gold to silver to bronze to iron, These things are paralleled by the four different beasts as they appear one after the next. So we can generally draw a connecting line between a metal, a beast, and a particular Gentile empire or kingdom. Now there are some differences between those visions, however. Nebuchadnezzar's vision was given at the beginning and at the height of the Babylonian Empire's status and power and reach. The vision received by Daniel occurred during the reign of the final king of Babylon. The first year of that king's time on the throne, to be specific. Belshazzar governed over a diminishing, a weakening, a soon-to-be-conquered Babylon. Its last days as an empire. And the nature of the vision and the symbolism used, while said to be parallel, more represents what I would call a duality. That is to say that the dream statue of Daniel 2, an image of a man, presented the history 
of the Gentile nations in how they were viewed outwardly by men, by humans. These empires are portrayed as powerful and rich and majestic. They're to be feared. They're to be admired. Now Daniel's vision of the four beasts in chapter 7 is representative not of how the world sees these four empires, but how God sees them. Inwardly, they are spiritually decrepit, they're morally bankrupt, they're dangerous. They're dangerous to God's people. They're dangerous to God's plan of redemption, so they're worthy only of destruction. So as a means to help us dive into Daniel chapter 7, we can say that this chapter relates directly to Daniel chapter 2. And especially as regards this fourth beast, this fourth empire, we're given more details as progressive revelation. But I also must warn you that since we all come from different church or synagogue backgrounds, we will have heard many different interpretations of what this chapter is telling us about the future. Therefore, it's probable that what I will tell you won't entirely match what you've previously been taught. And way back in the second lesson on the book of Daniel, I presented you with a summary of the three primary theological viewpoints of end times doctrine called post-millennial, amillennial, and pre-millennial. This is not to be confused, by the way, with post-mid or pre-trib doctrine, which, although it's related, is not the same thing. I'm not going to take the time to review those doctrines. You can do that on your own. However, the way one views and interprets Daniel chapter 7 is nearly invariably wrapped up in one of those three in times doctrines, even if you didn't know it by name. Now to put a finer point on it, theologically speaking, pastors, commentators, academics, Bible teachers generally have been taught and accept and therefore view biblical end times events through the lens of one of these three different end times doctrines before they ever enter into study of a biblical book that speaks about end times matters. Therefore, whatever a book or a passage says is automatically kind of bent and shaped to fit within that prepackaged doctrine. From my perspective, certain aspects of each of these three doctrines has merit. And other aspects of them are dubious at best. Sometimes conclusions are firmly drawn not because there's strong evidence to back it up, but only because a particular doctrine allows for no other conclusion or that doctrine itself just falls apart. So as we continue and you hear words from my mouth that sound like I may be fully supporting one of these three doctrines over another, that is just not the case. In truth... 
If one was to take the total weight of one of these end times doctrines compared to another, what I tell you will probably sound closest to the pre-millennial doctrine. But it would be wrong to assume that I'm teaching you the rather conventional premillennial viewpoint. Further, I want to remind you that what we read in Daniel 7, especially concerning the fourth kingdom, is mostly future to us. Some of Daniel 7 is in the past and it's prophetically fulfilled, but some of it's in progress. Some has yet to happen. In fact, whether an event is in the past, it's in progress, or it's entirely future to us, that's what forms the main differences among these three main end times doctrinal systems. And I also want to say that scholars and Bible teachers who helped form these three doctrines so many years ago were not fools or crackpots. There are some good scriptural reasons why they settled on what they did as a base of interpretation for for Daniel's and also for other end times prophecies. Now I'm going to explore that with you lightly as appropriate. I'm also going to challenge some of these doctrines that many of you might hold dear. Perhaps introduce some other possible interpretations you might not have thought about. I feel quite free to do this because unfulfilled prophecy is something no human ought to think is his or her sole province. No one knows all the knowledge of the future. Nor do we have a clear vision of how all these end times events are going to actually play out. In our years of study together, one thing ought to have become crystal clear for you. Not even the prophets who were given these dreams and visions from God about the future knew any more than what those who heard those same oracles from that prophet's mouth knew. If the Lord intended for these prophecies to be clear and unmistakable and used as a means to chart the future, the language would have been precise. A lot more details given. It takes time. It takes the flow of history for some things to become more evident. And only in hindsight can we ever know, can we ever be certain of exactly how a prophecy came to pass and what it all looked like. As Sir Isaac Newton said, and I paraphrase, The purpose of biblical prophecy is not to give us a glimpse into the future so that we can take advantage of what's coming or to to, to satisfy our curiosity. The purpose of prophecy in the Bible is for God to show His mastery over time and space. He tells humans enough information in advance about improbable things that are going to happen later. And then when it does happen, it is proof of His omniscience, omnipotence, and faithfulness that only the unbelieving or the apostate can deny. 
I have much respect and admiration for prophecy teachers who study hard, pray even harder, and then present us with their insights. But that respect diminishes when their conclusions harden, their assumptions turn to fact in their eyes, and no difference of opinion is tolerated. Some may turn out to have been correct, at least maybe about some aspects of in times events. But as they say, even a stop clock's right twice a day. Somebody's going to get it right somehow, or pieces of it. So I want you to know that because we're going to be discussing a lot of unfulfilled prophecy, it's necessarily so that much of what I will offer is my opinion. Sometimes speculation. And I claim no office of prophet. I'd like to think that most of what I'll say comes from diligent Bible study. Comes from examining historical and extra-biblical evidence. Considering God's established patterns. And frankly, trying to avoid fitting doctrinal square pegs into prophetic round holes. Now I'm sure on some level... I'll fail at that. That's the danger of teaching prophecy. And it's why so few pastors will even venture there anymore. So with all that as a caveat, let's see what we can learn from Daniel chapter 7. Verse 1 says that almost immediately after Belshazzar became a king, Daniel was in his bed at nighttime when he had this vision. He felt it was complex enough and important enough that he took the time to write it down. Now doubt it was so he could read it over and over again as he tried to comprehend its significance. The first descriptive elements of this vision that we receive are of four winds blowing over a great sea. Now the Aramaic word for wind is the same as the Hebrew, ruach. And ruach carries a dual meaning of a physical wind and of a spiritual wind. So ruach is the word used for spirit in the Bible, as in ruach hakodesh, the Holy Spirit. Wind, like spirit, is mysterious because you can't see it. No one knows where it comes from or where it goes to. It is common in the Bible and in both ancient and modern literature to speak of the four winds as coming from the four corners of the globe. The great sea spoken of here does not mean the Mediterranean Sea as it sometimes does in the Bible. Rather, this is a symbolic sea. And as in some places in the book of Revelation, the sea is symbolic of the nations and the people of the world as a whole. We're told that the four winds break out over this great sea. So the mental picture is of a divinely orchestrated series of global events that create turmoil and chaos among the nations. Just as a hurricane force wind whipping over an ocean creates a dangerous, boiling, roiling, chaotic cauldron of waves and foam. And 
out of this chaos of the Gentile nations arises four strange beasts. No two of them the same. Let me reemphasize. This is speaking of Gentile nations. The sequence is from the first to appear, the next to appear, then the third, and finally the last one, the fourth beast. So they don't all arise simultaneously. They arise one after the other. The first beast is said to be like a lion, but with eagle's wings. Like a lion means it has similarities to a lion. Perhaps attributes of a lion, but it wasn't a lion. For one thing, lions don't have eagle's wings. Then after the lion beast arises, something removed those eagle's wings and lifted this beast off the earth and made it stand on two feet like a man with a human heart given to it. Now a lion was considered the king of beasts. An eagle was considered the king of birds. A lion was powerful, but it had limited range, limited dominion. An eagle had a wide range, an extended dominion as it soars above the mountains and the valleys, below that that it gives it the ability to go great distances. So some of this beast's, this lion beast power was taken away from it when its wings were removed. It still had power like a lion, but it lost its ability to project its power to go out and conquer due to its now limited range, the attribute that had first been provided by eagle's wings. Now Nebuchadnezzar had been compared to a lion and to an eagle in Jeremiah, Lamentations, Habakkuk, and in Ezekiel. So it's rather easy to see that this first beast represents the Babylonian Empire. And as a reminder, a king and his empire were seen as one and the same. A king is representative of his empire or of his kingdom. Then there is the matter of the beast losing its beastly attributes and gaining human attributes. In other words, this is we're told he was made to stand on two feet and he gets a human heart. Recall the story of King Nebuchadnezzar being made like a beast of the field for seven units of time due to his blasphemy. Then he recognizes who the God of Daniel is, pays him proper homage, God gives him back a human heart and restores him to his throne. This without doubt is what's being spoken of here. Then a second beast appears. It's like a bear, similar to a bear, but it's not a bear. So the lion beast comes first, then the bear beast comes second, and the second beast is different from the first beast. Probably it's fair to say that in ancient times, if the king of the beast was the lion, the bear is the prince. A bear is known for its ferocity, for its strength, but the language of this passage about the bear beast is very difficult. 
And while it's not all that hard to translate, it's hard to make any definite sense out of it. There's been a number of attempts to understand what it means by the bear beast raising up on one side. Some say it's speaking of a walking motion as a bear stalks its prey. Others say it means it leaned on one side while elevating the other. Another interpretation is that it is in reference to the dream statue of Daniel chapter 2 and its two silver arms as well as to Daniel chapter 8 and the animal with two horns with one of its horns rising up higher than the other. Thus the bear beast rising up on its one side is the same as the one horn rising up higher than the other side. And this is supposed to represent the double-sidedness of the world kingdom symbolized by this bear beast. In sense, the media Persian empire was double-sided, Median Persia, then the double-sided bear beast is its symbol. Personally, I find that contrived, if not exhausting, to even tell you about it. <laughs> so I don't really think the symbolism of it's at all clear. Now as for the three ribs in the bear beast's mouth, there's equally as impressive a number of interpretations for it as there are for the bear rising up on one side and some of them are just as tortured. At the least, the three ribs indicate that this violent predatory creature had just killed and eaten since the ribs were still being carried in its teeth. And then the next words of the passage were an instruction to go and gorge itself with flesh. So the ribs and the teeth and the gorging of flesh are obviously connected. However, I see a pretty logical explanation that history shows is probably the right one by which to interpret this passage. If the bear beast is is the media Persian empire, which I think it is, and this is generally accepted, we know that they conquered, they devoured, three substantial kingdoms. Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia. That would obviously represent the three ribs and the bear beast's teeth. This is the simplest, most apparent solution, and in hindsight, it's exactly what happened. So I don't see any reason to reject it and try to find something else. Now the third beast appears. And it said to be like a leopard or a panther. Again, it's not a leopard or a panther, but it has similar attributes. Now the panther beast has four heads. Also has bird's wings. Now please make a mental note of this. Because we're going to refer to this again next time. This third beast is specifically said to have four heads, which is the only one of the four beasts that claims multiple heads. You with me? Tuck it away, you're going to need it. Now, assuming that this is symbolizing Macedonia, Greece, or just Greece for short, as I think so, and so unanimously this is the verdict pretty much in the Bible academic world, The panther or the leopard is less known for its power, more for its lightning fast agility. So the third world empire is a panther or leopard, which in chapter 2 was symbolized by the torso and the thighs of bronze. The bird wings, again, indicate the extent of its range. 
and that this beast isn't only swift, but it also is able to cover large distances. Historically speaking, Alexander the Great, the king of this third world empire of Greece, was able to conquer more quickly and more wide-ranging territorially than anyone before him. In fact, this attribute was perhaps his hallmark. Now, as to the four heads of this third beast. Some say it represents the four points of the compass, the four corners of the world, similar to the sense of those four winds blowing over the great sea to begin this chapter. So the thought is that it is representing how widespread Alexander's empire became. But historically, we find that the government of Greece indeed became a four-headed creature. Before he died, Alexander divided up his empire into four districts. And he gave one each to Ptolemy, Seleucus, Philip, and Antigonus. So it's hard for me to see the symbolism of the four heads as anything else than these four rulers of the Grecian Empire who ruled separate districts simultaneously. Just as these four heads of the beast in the vision existed all at the same time as opposed to say one appearing and then another appearing in some kind of a sequence. They appear all at once. They're all on the beast at the same time. Then in verse 7, the fourth beast appeared. It was totally unlike the previous three, themselves, of course, all different from one another. The differentiation, though, between this beast and all the previous ones is that this fourth beast is given no likeness at all. No beast of the field is given as a similar as a type of animal because the wanton destructiveness of the fourth is so unlike anything else that there is no comparison in the animal kingdom to draw upon. So whereas the first and second beasts had characteristics to go out and conquer, and the third beast was given characteristics to rule effectively, this fourth beast's main characteristics is is terrible destructiveness. Probably its main feature is its iron teeth, which helps to identify rather readily with the dream statue, the fourth empire of iron. And therefore, this is the Roman Empire. Even the destructive nature of this beast had no bounds. Its intensity was such that even after it had devoured and crushed whatever debris was left, it went back, stomped on it some more, and ground it to dust. The final words of verse 7 speak of its difference also in that the other three had come before it. So we get additional confirmation this was not a random order, but that the four beasts appear in the exact sequence that's presented to us. And this fourth beast is the only one of them to have horns. Ten of them. Now in antiquity and in the Bible, a horn is representative of power. And so usually it symbolizes a kingdom. 
Thus this beast had on its head ten horns, representing ten kings with their kingdoms. That said, some excellent Bible expositors like Edward Young claim that even the number ten is symbolic. So it should not be taken literally as an exact number of kings and their kingdoms. That is, the number ten is a numerological symbol of divine completeness. So these kings need not be exactly ten in number, nor do they need even to appear and rule simultaneously. They could be spread out over time. And since the horns seem on the surface anyway to be a parallel of the toes on the feet of the dream statue, then it seems as though the number ten ought to be taken literally rather than only symbolically. But Edward Young is one of several who point out that in chapter 2, nowhere does it say that the dream statue had ten toes, only that it had toes. Now for me, that's pressing the point a little bit too far. Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue was of a man. And every other body part mentioned was correct, had the expected number. Why would anybody think it was necessary to inform readers that the number of toes on that man, that dream statue, was ten? So I just think that the number ten is meant literally, but it is also representative as a numerological symbol. Just as we find with a number of other events in the Bible. Israel with their 40 years in the wilderness, the number of tribes is 12, the Godhead is 3, Jonah in the belly of the fish for 3 days and 3 nights, so on and so forth. But then Daniel sees another horn. A smaller horn. It suddenly sprouts from the midst of the ten. But as a consequence of the appearance of this other horn, three others were uprooted, meaning they were either superseded or they were destroyed. And this horn, unlike the others, is said to be little, and that it has the eyes of a man. It has a mouth that speaks great things. Now, some of your Bibles don't say great things. Rather, they say blasphemous things, or they say arrogant things. That's simply the opinion of the Bible editor. That idea is nowhere present in the Bible text. Great things is probably the best translation we can do. Now, obviously, Daniel is fixated upon these horns because of their importance. They are apparently the key to the mystery of this fourth beast. The eye and the mouth of the little horn means this is speaking of a man, a particular potentate, not necessarily of a kingdom. Now remember, a horn is typically a king who is representative of his kingdom. So this horn is quite different in nature from the other ten. Biblically speaking, an eye symbolizes wisdom and insight, circumspection and and, and prudence. The mouth that speaks great things is meaning a man who has the power of persuasion like few men who have ever lived. But it's also a mouth that knows its power. So it speaks words of self-glorification. 
Well, as we near to a close today, this is a good time to point out that Bible critical scholars say that the author of Daniel is using the little horn to symbolize, of course, Antiochus Epiphanes. And this idea seems to have begun with the Neoplatonist philosopher in the 200s AD named Porphyry. He had this strange love-hate relationship with Jews and Christians. And of course, the Bible. And he particularly wanted to discredit the book of Daniel for reasons that aren't clearly understood. So he was among the first to challenge its authenticity. He wrote that obviously the little horn was Epiphanes who had overthrown three other horns. Like the Bible says, kings with their kingdoms. Ptolemy Philometer, Ptolemy uh, uh, Eurgetes, and Artaxia. Now hopefully, Porphyry was a better philosopher than he was a historian. Because both of the Ptolemies that he named as being three of the horns that Epiphanes overthrew were dead before he was ever born. Before Epiphanes was ever born. See, this is the length that some scholars in all ages will go to to try and discredit the Word of God. But if God's people, if you, will just take the time to investigate and study, it seems that most of the accusations can be exposed for the speculations and intellectual dishonesty and the baseless assumptions that they turn out to be. Next time, we're going to dig even deeper into the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7 that has so much connection to the book of Revelation and the relevance to end times that are just ahead of us and we're going to especially look at the identity of that little horn.